0: Good afternoon, and welcome, everyone, to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Raff. I'm Manish Raff here at Keller & Heckman here in Washington, D.C., and I'm grateful to all of you for joining us for what I think is somewhere around the 46th episode of the OSHA 3030. We've been doing this since about August of 2013. Uh, this is a program, for those of you who are new to our community, This is a program that we do about every 30 days, and it is a program that we try and limit to about 30 minutes, in which we cover what we think are some of the most impactful developments in the field of OSHA law, safety and health, occupational safety and health law. So with that, uh, I'm grateful to all of you for joining us, and I'm also grateful to my colleague, Javane Nakumaram. An associate attorney here at Callahan Heckman for joining me uh, on today's OSHA 3030. Javanay, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me, Manish.
0: So let's keep moving through. Next slide. So what we're going to talk about today. Is, uh, at first I think we're going to start with a background on, uh, what it takes to go through the process of not only contesting a citation, but also appealing a citation. And, uh, and I think that's really the main theme of today's discussion. And, uh, then we're going to get into a recent decision that prompted today's topic, uh, which is the, the case involving Jacobs Field Services. Uh, North America, and, and we're going to get into the facts of that case as well as what the employer argued on the level of before the review commission and then when appealing it to the Fifth Circuit and, uh, what the review commission and the Fifth Circuit said in their opinions and as a result of the Fifth Circuit decision, what we think employers should do. I should point out, going back one slide, that the, uh, prior library of the entire set of OSHA 3030 uh, programs that we've done in the past can be found on our website khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. And when you go to khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030, you should find uh, almost the full five years worth of uh, prior OSHA 3030 programs. You'll see both the slides and the sound in one, uh, um, self-executing file. And so this is a great resource for you to go back with student titles, see if there are any other OSHA law developments in the past few years that are important to you or of interest to you, and you can catch up on those at your own time in our, uh, khlaw.com library of prior OSHA 3030s. Alright, so we talked about what we're going to talk about today. Let's get into first the, uh, giving you a background on the process for contesting a citation, and then I think we ought to get into into the this really important decision, Jacobs field services. Giovan?
1: Oh, great, thank you. so in uh, the central to the Jacobs field decision is the, the appeals process, so, so going from the stage of appealing a citation to um, taking up the case before an administrative law judge and then before the full commission and then the fifth circuit decision or then potentially the federal courts. And so going back a few steps, just to go over the process for contesting a citation, uh, when an employer receives, um, excuse me, when an employer receives uh, an OSHA citation for alleged violations, there are a few options that they have at their disposal. The first is you could agree to the citation, uh, take corrective action as prescribed by OSHA, and also pay the um, pay the penalties that were assessed by OSHA. Or you can also uh, contest the citation, which Jacobs Fields did in this case. Uh, you can contest either the violation itself or the penalty or even the abatement date. And so uh, in doing so, uh, you essentially, the first step is that the, uh, the case would be assigned to an administrative law judge, and uh, the administrative law judge can make a decision about the citation, including, like, like I said, uh, everything from the penalties to citations itself. And then depending on the outcome of the ALJ decision, employers can choose to request a full panel review by the um, Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, or we'll just refer to it as the commission throughout this presentation. And so once the commission makes a final decision, that is the extent of the administrative remedies that the employer can go through. And if the employer wants to challenge a commission's decision, then that the next step would be at the federal court level. Um, and then uh, for the third option, in response to a, a citation received by OSHA, companies can, if they want to, if they don't want to go through litigation, if they don't want to go through the administrative appeals process, they can request that OSHA enter into informal settlement negotiations and agreements uh, with each other and come up with a solution.
0: Jovanne, I have to point out that two things really critical here. Uh, An employer has exactly 10 days to file its notice of contest. I can't stress the importance of that enough because if an employer fails to enter its notice of contest and properly contest the uh, aspects of the citation and proposed penalty and recommended abatement that it believes are subject to its contest, within 10 days it is the equivalent of a guilty plea, so to speak, And that's really the end of the road for the employer. If it later, on the 11th or any other day after that, decides it wishes to contest the citation, it has sat on its rights. And so it's really important for the employer to make its decisions quickly upon receipt of the citation. And I'll say one more thing. The request for informal conference is something that is really something OSHA is required to do before issuing a citation. But more importantly, uh, oftentimes these conversations can drag on to the point where they start before the 10 days have expired but then drag on till after the expiry of the 10 days notice of contest period. So it's really critical, even if you are engaged in discussions with OSHA to try and reach an informal uh, settlement or settlement agreement of any kind, uh, that it's important that you preserve your rights. And a lot of employers are reluctant to do so if they think that uh, their conversations, their settlement discussions are going productively, Uh, that they may feel like issuing a notice of contest is a spoiler for that uh, productive sort of tenor to their conversations with OSHA. Uh, But I I would caution that that is an instinct that is misleading and that it's it's critical no matter how uh, fruitful or uh, amicable the settlement discussions are, that you preserve your rights even while you continue to engage in those uh, putative settlement discussions. So, So, Giovanni, I couldn't help but point that out because I think that that's one of those moments where your rights are forever lost if you don't speak up promptly.
1: Absolutely. I think uh, mentioning the time frame is very critical because once you receive a citation, um, you know, the point from when you receive it to when a decision needs to be made can go very quickly. And so you want to make sure that if – there are certain violations that you you, you feel that need to be challenged that you do so during the appropriate time frame.
0: All right, so let's talk about this important case, Shavanagh Jacobs, Field Services North America Incorporated.
1: Right, so the case uh, at issue here, like I said, one of the big uh, issues that we'll get into more detail with later on is the the, uh, process that this company went through from when they received certain citations from OSHA to how they went about appealing uh, certain decisions. So first, let's let let's start with what happened in this case. So, so Jacobs Field is a resident maintenance contractor at Axonobel's LaPorte plant in Texas. So, so Axonobel, in this case, was the owner of the facility, and Jacobs Field was the contractor. So Jacobs Field, uh, well, the facility, at the facility, they manufacture specialty chemicals used in the plastics industry. And Jacobs Field employed about 30 or so employees on the site, primarily for the purpose of maintenance, maintenance services at the facility. So in this case, uh, Jacobs' supervisor instructed one particular employee to troubleshoot uh, four tanks that had malfunctioning airlines or valves. And now these tanks, they contained highly hazardous substances. They contained uh, the one tank at issue here contained about – 9,500 gallons of butyl ethyl magnesium, or BEM, which is essentially a mixture that uh, when exposed to air, it ignites. So so it's an extremely dangerous substance. So so uh, this employee, he replaced lines and valves on three of the four tanks successfully, but he had issues uh, maintaining uh, the the fourth tank. Uh, Next slide, please. So with the fourth tank, uh, the employee attempted to remove the actuator from a bracket mounting the valve, and in doing so, he loosened four bolts, uh, which unfortunately caused an unexpected chemical release, and the employee sustained first- and second-degree burns on his face, his wrists, and his neck as a result. And so uh, following the unfortunate uh, injury of the employee, I believe it was the next day, uh, OSHA uh, was on the site and they conducted an investigation. Uh, and as a result of their investigation, they issued a citation to Jacobs Field for six violations under the OSHA Act, most of which were violations of the PSM standard or the process safety management standard. So uh, what, For those of you who may not be familiar, the uh, Process Safety Management Standard is an OSHA standard that contains requirements for the management of hazards associated with processes using highly hazardous substances, in which case BEM, uh, they would consider to be. So these violations totaled to about $33,000 worth of penalties, and so this was significant. Now, to go through uh, very briefly what these violations were. As I said, uh, about three of the, or excuse me, four of the violation, alleged violations were PSM violations. And so the, <clears throat> excuse me, so the violations were uh, they included failure to uh, make information available to employees uh, pertaining to equipment in the process, uh, the alleged failure to develop safe work practices for the control of hazards. Uh, failure to establish procedures for maintaining the ongoing integrity of process equipment and failure to train, uh, to properly train the employees of these hazards. So these, these alleged violations all fall under uh, the process safety management standard. Uh, OSHA also issued uh, two additional uh, violate, excuse me, alleged violations under the lockout tagout standard and under the Uh, PPE general requirements under the YOSH Act, which uh, in this case was the alleged failure to require uh, affected employees to use appropriate personal protective equipment.
0: So it's really important to understand uh, when we talk about what the bases for Jacobs Field's objections were when they contested this uh, citation to understand the complexity of the task which this employee was performing. Jacobs Fields essentially argued before the review commission, hey, look, we were not – we were just a contractor. We were troubleshooting some valves that had some airflow problems, and we were not tasked with ongoing maintenance of the mechanical integrity of this process. Uh, Accordingly, we didn't task our employee to do so. We had a very specific task, and that was to deal with the airflow with – for malfunctioning valves, and when it comes to process safety management, that's just not our thing. That is strictly an ExxonMobil uh, process. It's their facility. They built it or they assumed it, and they, uh, they run it on a day-to-day basis, and so PSM is really their thing. Uh, that is the essence of Jacobsfield's arguments before the review commission, so they say when you look at the PSM requirements, things like training our employees or maintaining the integrity of the system or developing written procedures, it wouldn't naturally come to us as contractors responsible for maintenance. And likewise, we didn't charge our employee with any of those kinds of things and didn't therefore have to train him or make him aware of our uh, such any such procedures. To understand whether or not that argument makes sense to the Review Commission or ultimately to the Fifth Circuit, it's important to un- understand the complexity of the – apparatus that they were dealing with. So there's a reactor that is responsible for the reaction from ingredient chemicals to a resulting chemical, and piped out of that reactor, there are six settlement tanks, and these settlement tanks are pressurized, and they are responsible for uh, separating out heavier elements or heavier chemicals from lighter chemicals, and... Connecting each of these settlement tanks to the piping system, there are valves. These decanter valves have uh, automated on-off switches, basically, that work the valves, and they're called actuators. The actuators are mounted onto valves. Uh, They're actually mounted onto a bracket, and a bracket is mounted onto the flange of the valve. The reason this is important, and it may sound like a, a lot of extraneous detail, but the reason this is important is because they had two types of actuator bracket assemblies, an old style and a new style. And on the new style, uh, if you removed bolts from the actuator in order to service the line, that would have been fine. But if you removed the bolts from the brackets to the flange, you would have tapped into the line, and thereby created an unexpected release of the BEM, or butyl-ethyl-magnesium-heptane uh, mix. And when you expose that BEM chemical to air, it being a pyrophoric, it is something that could burn, and that's what exactly what happened. On the old-style mounting system, you could have removed all of the bolts, those that connected the actuator to the bracket and those that connected the bracket to the valve, and that would have been harmless. So you can see that depending on whether you're using the old style mounting system or the new style mounting system, it makes a difference as to which bolts can be removed. That, thus, the process that the mechanic or plumber uses, the technician uses, to service these lines is something that he, A, has to be educated on how these are are set up, and B, what the hazards are associated with it, and so OSHA's position is, well, if it's that complicated, uh, going from part to part, then you really should have trained the employee and had written procedures, etc. cetera. Uh, so, you, you know, when you look at Jacob's argument that, hey, we're just a contractor, we don't run the system or maintain the system, so t- uh, tagging us with responsibilities under the PSM standard is unfair, it, it sort of makes sense on its face until you understand that, indeed, what Axel Noble had charged Jacob's, Field services with dealing was complicated enough and did involve the potential for tapping into the process itself that was regulated under the process safety management standard. So, when Jacobs argues that this isn't what we tasked our employee to do to remove those last four bolts that would have resulted in exposure to, to the BEM chemical, that might have been true, but it was a sort of half-step away from what they did charge him to do. And he was trying to fix the problem and didn't know which bolts are removable and which ones aren't without resulting in an unexpected release. And socialist position is, well, that makes, to us, a PSM violation. So I think that's really important background for understanding Jacob's arguments, which were essentially going to the heart of the multi-employer worksite doctrine, and saying, hey, as a contractor, we're not responsible for any of the things that PSM, any of the requirements that PSM calls for. Uh, because when the ALJ, the administrative law judge, rejected the argument that AXO is the employer, they they essentially did so saying, look, as you know, under the multi-employer worksite doctrine, there are uh, – controlling employers and exposing employers, and Jacobs may not have been a controlling employer, but it definitely exposed its employees to the hazard and, therefore, had duties under the PSM standard. When Jacobs Fields uh, Field Services uh, asked the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission to review the administrative law judge's decision, the Review Commission upheld the process safety management citations.
1: So they, uh, the review commission did not direct the case for review, so that essentially uh, that that essentially made made it so the ALJ decision stood uh, with regard to Jacobs Field. And so in so of course, Jacobs Field decides to appeal this decision in the federal courts. So now, just to clarify, the uh, the ALJ decision while it did vacate a number of violations, it still, uh, still affirmed two PSM violations, which was the failure to establish uh, and implement written procedures for maintaining the ongoing integrity of process equipment and the failure to train employees on process hazards. So those were the two. Right. Uh,
0: That's right, Jeff. I mean, those are the two I was talking about yeah. where, where the review commission, I'm sorry, OSHA itself said, look, if this is really that complicated, then you at least have to have some procedures and you have to train your employees. Uh, And those you don't get out of simply because uh, the system itself belongs to the host employer.
1: That's absolutely right, Manish. So uh, Jacobs appeals uh, the review commission's uh, final decision before the Fifth Circuit and makes a number of familiar arguments here. So uh, it makes three primary arguments, the first of which is that the ALJ – Er in applying the requirements of the PSM standard to it as a contract employer so again it's they're bringing up the multi employer uh po- excuse me they're bringing up the multi employer policy again uh and again this is they don't feel that they as a contract employer are responsible for establishing written procedures for maintaining ongoing integrity of process equipment or training their employees for these hazards uh, they also they also uh, raised the argument that even if the PSM standard applied to them, their employees were not tasked with performing this work, and so the requirements don't apply to them. And then the third argument they raised was that the ALJ erred in determining that, that their company, Jacobs, knew or should have known of the hazardous condition. Next slide, please.
0: So when you look at those arguments uh, that Jacobs Field Services raises before the Fifth Circuit, you, you see that they've fleshed out much more detail before the Fifth Circuit than they ever raised before the Review Commission. The Review Commission said, look, first of all, as a standard of review, we will only consider arguments before the Fifth Circuit that were raised before the Review Commission, and secondarily, they have to have been raised to the Review Commission uh, with sufficient detail to put the Review Commission on notice the, as to what the issues are and give them a chance to review them. Uh, so the court won't consider anything that wasn't raised before the review commission, but in addition, even if you made a passing reference to it in the review commission, that might not be enough. Uh, the Fifth Circuit cited several of the cases where they believed that the appellate courts have, have maintained this position, uh, one using the expression abbreviated mention and stating that, look, If all you've done is made an abbreviated mention of an issue before the review commission, that's not enough to preserve your appeals rights before the U.S. Court of Appeals. I think it's really important to note that in this case, Jacobs Field Services only mentioned this host employer problem as a predicate to a secondary argument, which was we weren't charged by AXO to do this work, and so we didn't charge the employee to do this work.
1: That's right, Manish. So uh, essentially the the main thing to keep in mind when raising arguments at the appellate level is that the the review commission should have been alerted to the issue and given the opportunity to pass on it. It's not enough to have a passing comment or an abbreviated mention. You have to articulate the argument clearly and offer a modicum of developed argumentation and support. And so uh, Jacobs Field – uh, according to the Fifth Circuit, did not do that for two of its arguments.
0: So this is a tough position for Jacobs Field Services to be in. The Fifth Circuit says, look, we're not even going to hear these arguments. There, there's a, another argument that they do hear and evaluate on the merits. Ultimately, Jacobs Field Services loses on that as well. But what we're here for today, I think is really important, that the arguments before the Fifth Circuit were fully forfeited because they weren't uh, spelled out and detailed and argued before the review commission. Uh, the problem for Jacobs Field Services was that they had to do more than just note an issue, that in order to uh, state an objection, they not only had to identify it as a distinct point of objection, but then they had to provide the support, the supporting factual and legal arguments. Uh, for that objection and if they had three or four sub-arguments in support of that objection another point that the Fifth Circuit made was that all of those had to have been mentioned before the Review Commission you can't just mention the basis for your objection and then full- more fully expound on it before the Fifth Circuit so all of your arguments had to have been raised before the Review Commission in order for those arguments to have been heard by the Fifth Circuit I think this is a really important point and it's one of the very very few cases out there that suggests the limited Scope of review that an employer gets when going to a federal uh, court of appeals. I think that there's a common notion in the employer side bar in OSHA law that the review commission is more disposed towards the priority of worker safety and health and that the federal courts are charged with uh, a critical review of agency power and therefore some issues are more likely to get the careful scrutiny they deserve when you get, and only when you get to the Federal Court of Appeals. Nevertheless, it is really critical to fully uh, advance those arguments at the Review Commission. And if you didn't think of them, or you didn't think the Review Commission would be sympathetic, uh, you may have uh, permanently sat on your rights for getting a better look at it by the Federal Court of Appeals. So with that said, it's, let's go to the next slide. It's important to keep in mind that the best opportunity for raising all of your arguments at the Fifth Circuit or at any other Court of U.S. Court of Appeals, is to make sure that they get raised, uh, at the Review Commission. Jacobs Field Services, not content, uh, with the Fifth Circuit's decision, petitioned the Fifth Circuit to rehear the, the decision on banc or as a panel. The Fifth Circuit, a few months later, Denied in a one-sentence order, the uh, employer's petition for review or rehearing on banc, and then Jacobs Field Services petitioned the Supreme Court for a writ of certiorari. Uh, as many of you may know, the opportunity to get the Supreme Court to grant a writ of certiorari, merely expressed as a percentage of all of the petitions filed, is something closer to zero percent than one percent. Uh, and so that prompts some appellate attorneys to kiddingly say, you have literally 0% chance of getting the U.S. Supreme Court to hear your case. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened to Jacobs. Their, their petition for registered GRI was denied uh, only a couple of weeks ago. Yep. And that's the end of the road for Jacobs. And it need not be the end of the road for any of you members of our OSHA 3030 community. What we think employers ought to do in light of this decision, and what we've always done, is carefully consider, uh, as as you know, we started off this program talking about your time limits, not only for filing a notice of contest, but I'll note uh, down there at number seven, there's also a very strict time limit to appeal a review commission decision to a U.S. Court of Appeals. Uh, so So the time limits have to be calculated very quickly by your counsel. The second point I'd make is, If you have issues at the notice of contest level, you have to raise them all in your notice, and then uh, all of your objections to uh, why the citation was issued have to be noted before the ALJ, then if the ALJ renders a decision and you take exception to any assertions of fact or any of the ALJ's conclusions of law, those objections have to be asserted before the ALJ, and when you object... Uh, it has to be repeated to the Review Commission when you ask them to review. Uh, the Review Commission has to also be uh, informed not only of any errors of, of fact, but as I said, the errors of law and all of the arguments in support of those errors of law. Um, then, as I said before, you have a time limit for for getting to the U.S. Court of Appeals. And I think it's really critical when you argue these points at every stage to note that, uh, to anticipate that OSHA is going to, on questions that are ambiguous on the face of the standard, is going to argue that it should be entitled to agency deference, that agencies should be deferred to on their interpretations of their own standards. And I think you've got to, together with your counsel, formulate arguments that anticipate this and uh, deal with them. I think the the classic overarching structure to your arguments neutralizing this point are centered around two themes. One, either the lack of ambiguity to the standard, or two, the nature of any interpretations that might have contradicted OSHA's current uh, interpretation in this case. And finally, OSHA really is not entitled to render an interpretation that's granted deference. For the first time in a case, we're really only talking about prior interpretations. Those are what I'd be calling... um, ingenuous interpretations because if it's a interpretation in a case for the first time I might refer to that as a disingenuous interpretation or a self-interested interpretation which is not entitled to the same deference or should not be entitled to the same deference. And so all of these issues have to be raised before the Review Commission so that you can again raise them before the Fifth Circuit. And that came up in Jacobs uh, Field Services in passing as well but it comes up in a great many cases when they get Federal Court of Appeals review. So that's those are the kinds of things that we think employers should do when noting their appeal. You can't be careful enough when formulating all of your arguments before the review commission uh, and that's it for today's OSHA thirty thirty uh, As many of you know, we are on Twitter at Rathmonish. If you are on Twitter as well you you can link up to catch developments in OSHA law. Uh, our OSHA thirty thirty library of prior OSHA thirty thirty are found at Cage Law. .com slash OSHA 3030. But we've also, for about a year now, been streaming them on podcasts. So after about a day or so, you can find this program, as well as uh, several of our prior other OSHA 3030s, on your favorite podcast streaming service like iTunes. And uh, that's a great opportunity for you to take the audio portion of this program on the road with you. So forward that to your colleagues. If you get invitations to the next OSHA 3030, make sure you forward it to at least three others responsible for OSHA law in your office of general counsel or the offices of general counsel at other organizations or safety and health professionals in your organization or other organizations. And finally, we're on LinkedIn, both on the Monash Rath webpage on LinkedIn, as well as Colin Heckman's workplace safety and health program. The next program for the OSHA 3030 is scheduled for uh, July 26th. That is a Wednesday, and that is at 1 p.m., it's always on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. So we look forward to seeing you on July 26th. Uh, after this program is over, we will uh, have a slide uh, up for a survey. So please take a moment to fill out that survey. The survey feedback we get is instrumental in helping us improve the program. And the other thing that's critical for the lifeblood of the program is that you forward this invitation on to others when you get it to make sure that we continue to bring new adherents to the OSHA 3030 community. We're grateful to all of you for participating in this Social 3030. Javane Nakumaram, I'm grateful to you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me, Manos. And
0: until next month, stay safe.